This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Tonight, we want to finish up a study that we have been in. Uh, This part of the study, we've been talking about Reformed or Covenant theology. And you can't study this subject without looking at various Reformers, especially uh, the man who was John Calvin. And so uh, we've been in a, we looked at the first part of this, tonight we're going to uh, conclude it, Uh, but helping you to understand that our history can affect our theology, but we must not let that happen because whatever we believe, uh, the faith once delivered to the saints is what God gave us in his, his gave us in his inspired word. It's not what came from reformers. All right, now praise the Lord for the light that shined into their hearts, uh, for the grace that God gave men like Calvin and Zwingli and Luther and Huss. But I'm not going to call my theology by any reformer. Uh my theology has to come from the Word of God. And uh, so that's the purpose for why we've been looking at this man in particular. Because of the popularity of covenant theology, the dangers that we've examined to this point. I mentioned that history is a helpful tool for understanding how God has preserved his truth and his church in cooperating, using, cooperating with, working through Uh, those who knew him as Savior. Scripture exhorts us to consider the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us so that we might lay aside every weight in the sins that easily beset us. But let's be honest, those heroes of faith and those that we can look back on and see that in various ways God used their lives, they also had to set aside weights and sins. And frankly, some of what they should have set aside and what we look at their lives and need to set aside uh, is even some of the conclusions they came to from Scripture uh, that resulted from a bad hermeneutic. In other words, how they interpreted the Word of God. And so I gave you the background. We looked at the background of John Calvin, mentioned that he was raised in a Roman Catholic home. Uh, was preparing for the priesthood, actually was a clerk in the Roman church. Uh, His brother was a priest. His father, uh, uh, both his brother and his father, ran into trouble with the church. And so uh, his dad then recommended that John uh, become a lawyer. And his dad, you can see this is documented, his dad knew he'd make more money being a lawyer anyway. And uh, so, uh, but he was converted after a friend read to him the scriptures and the writings of Luther. He became so vocal in his Protestant beliefs that he was forced to leave Paris. But the real important thing again to remember is that here is a converted young man who has only known Catholicism and at the age of 26, to demonstrate his brilliance, He wrote what we know uh, today, uh, what has made him famous, 
uh, the institutes of the Christian religion. But I would submit to you that he was a novice in the faith. And at that age, with his background, there was certainly going to be, uh, there were going to be theological conclusions that he came to that are problematic. And, uh, and Calvinism has continued to be uh, a source of confusion, uh, debate in the church, and it certainly has not helped, listen carefully, it has not helped the main reason that the church is still here and the marching orders the Lord has given us, it has not helped evangelism. So what were his beliefs? Well, they were very Catholic, apart from salvation by grace through faith alone. And I shared some of these with you. Here's, here's one. He said this, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church whence flow perpetual remission of sins and full restoration to eternal life. I gave you Matthew 26, 28, Acts 10, 43, uh, where we see very clearly from those passages that remission of sins does not come through the church. It comes through believing on Jesus Christ. I also mentioned that he was a disciple of Augustine. In fact, he said he, he knew Augustine's writings so well that if he had to write out his doctrinal statement, his position, that he could quote Augustine nonstop and never quote uh, anybody else. I mean, that, that's, he just, he understood and uh, again followed Augustine. Augustine's doctrine that Calvin embraced. I share these with you regarding the free will of man where Calvin believed because Augustine believed that under the free will of man, even as he, God, has appointed them to be regenerated, some to be regenerated, whom he predestinated to everlasting life as the most merciful bestower of grace, while to those whom he has predestinated to eternal death, he is also the most righteous awarder of punishment. All right, so God created some souls because he just wanted to damn them to eternal judgment. The only problem is I don't see that in the Bible. And we looked at some passages where what's emphasized even in passages where it talks about God's judgment, how he is long-suffering with souls. And of course, 2 Peter 3, 9, he is not willing that any should perish, but that how many should come to repentance? So that the elect will come. No, no. All should come to repentance. There's no way that you can see John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whosoever. You know, that's, that's pretty clear. Unless you'd rather follow somebody else's theology than what you see in, in Scripture. We also looked at regarding the use of physical force in the church. Augustine believed that to keep anybody in the church, you could use physical force. And in fact, Augustine himself quoted Luke 14, 23, go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. Well, that means, according to Scripture, invite anybody to the feast. 
but not according to Augustine, take a big stick. And if they're not willing to come, convince them. That's not what the scripture teaches unless your hermeneutic allows you to do things with the Bible other than a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation. And so it's no wonder, as we'll see in just a little bit, that some of the reformers, including Calvin, use physical force and, and even torture against those who disagreed with him theologically. Regarding the kingdom, uh, one author has, has shown here uh, that Augustine went so far as to announce through his book, The City of God, that Rome had been privileged to usher in the millennial kingdom. My Bible says in Revelation 18 that God will destroy the Roman church. Remember that Babylon, that confederation, religion, uh, religious, this economic um, entity that is referred to, by the way, as the great whore. If you study the history of the Roman church, they've been able to get along with some pretty bad governments. Why? Well, because it's, it's not the true church. That may sound unkind, but let me remind you again that a thousand years of church history we look back on as the dark ages. And uh, the church is supposed to be, ye are the light of the world. The church that was supposed to be the light of the world, according to historians, a thousand years, those were the dark ages. That tells me Christ wasn't shining through. All right, so that's, that's all review. Let's, let's bring it down to the issues, the main issues that we have as Baptists. At the same time the reformers were trying to change the Roman Catholic Church from within, a group of nonconformists, Anabaptists, Donatists, uh, Waldensians, we, uh, if you have not read Ernest Pickering's book, uh, Biblical Separation, you need to get it because he traces uh, the separatist movement all the way back to these true believers right, who were never part of the Roman Church. Uh, so you had, you had uh, these reformers who were trying to change the church from the inside. You had these nonconformists who stayed out and were trying to please the Lord, literal interpretation of Scripture, and trying to maintain a pure church. So, as Franklin Liddell says, baptism became important only because it was the most obvious dividing line between two patterns of church organization. This is why their first confession, and I'm talking about these nonconformists, the Schleitheim Confession emphasized baptism and church discipline. Church discipline, they called the ban. Why, did, uh, why were these things so important? Well, first of all, baptism was protection of the purity of the church from without. Now listen carefully. Here's how the protection happened. If you came to faith in Christ... The evidence of that was now you were willing to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. But in the days of the Reformation, if you did that, that was a death sentence. And so protection from without, you had folks who were willing 
after they came to Christ, to publicly identify with him. By the way, fellow Americans, it's not dangerous to be baptized here usually. But if you live in India, if you live in Burma, it, it was this way uh, in the old Soviet Union. You can, you can claim to believe whatever, but when you got baptized, that changed everything because it was proof you were serious about your profession. So baptism protected the purity of the church from without. The ban, church discipline, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, protected the purity of the church from within. By the way, this was not excommunication. See, that's the Roman church. Excommunication is God's rejection of you. Church discipline is God's restoration. Trying to help you get right with the Lord so that you can be brought back into fellowship with him first and then with the body. And so what happened with these nonconformists, these Anabaptists, these rebaptizers who were the forerunners of, of our, we as Baptists because we follow the Baptist distinctives, the clear doctrinal um, areas that separate us from others who would claim uh, to know Christ by salvation through faith. First of all, separation of church and state. This is the, the big, uh, one of the big Baptist issues. The Church of the Middle Ages was not a company of believing folk joined in voluntary association. The Church of the Middle Ages was a mass of human beings brought together and held together by the symbol of coercion, the sword of the secular power. That's Leonard uh, Vaurin in his book, The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. Now, what was he saying? That if you were born into, the, into a Catholic family, you were part of the church. And in the, in the minds of the Catholic church, uh, God's blessing was the fact that we have governments who have declared us the state church, and they're the muscle behind our beliefs. So if you don't agree with our beliefs, our theology, our traditions, we can turn you over to the state. And they'll discipline you, uh, they'll imprison you, and if need be, if we tell them to do so, they'll execute you, okay? Because we've got to keep the church together. And so Calvin State Church in Geneva, again, this, this bled over into these reformers. Calvin State Church in Geneva, Switzerland, was just as intolerant of the church of Rome uh, or as the church of Rome that it sought, uh, he had sought to reform. So Will Durant says this, to speak disrespectfully of Calvin or the clergy was a crime. The first violation of these ordinances was punishment with a reprimand, further violation with fines, persistent violation with imprisonment or banishment. He goes on in the years 1558 and 59, there were 414 prosecutions for moral offenses. Between 1542 and 1564, there were 76 banishments and 58 executions. The total population of Geneva was about 20,000 people. So after persistent uh, going uh, to you and you not agreeing with us or you speaking out against the theology of Calvin and others, it could result in imprisonment, banishment, or even execution. 
Now, we recognize as Baptists, God has created the authority of government, God has created the authority of the church, and he's created the, the authority of the home. Each have their own called ministers, leaders, where God has specifically stated the authority. But it's, those are clear distinctions. So Peter would say to the authorities in his day, you decide, but we ought to obey God rather than man. Again, a distinction between government uh, and the church. And by the way, you don't ever see apostles or pastors lording over the authority of the home. Okay? The, the head of your home is the husband, dad. Or if there's no dad, it's mom. But it's not your pastor. Now, I have the responsibility for the Lord if I uh, sense or, or know of something in the home that is not biblical to come alongside and encourage from the scripture, challenge you on that, but I'm not the authority. All right, and so uh, there, there, the lines were blurred and there was in, in, uh, intolerance and there was open persecution against those who dared to disagree with these reformers. Number two, salvation before baptism. Because Anabaptists did not recognize the infant baptism of the Catholic Church, Calvin and other reformers opposed them. At the Diet of Spire, 1529, the emperor's, uh, emperor's edict sentenced all Anabaptists to be killed like wild beasts without the privilege of a trial or a judge. The following quote relates the bloodletting that followed at the hands of these reformers. Some were racked and drawn asunder. Others were burnt to ashes and dust. Some were roasted on pillars or torn with red-hot pinchers. Others were hanged on trees, beheaded with a sword, or thrown into the water. Some started, uh, I'm sorry, some starved and rotted in darksome prisons. Some who were deemed too young for execution were whipped with rods, and many lay for years in dungeons. And I could go on and on. It gets worse from there. It reads like Fox's Book of Martyrs, but this was what was happening at the hands of the reformers. If you read Hebrews 11, 36 to 39, uh, as I was reading these things, it almost sounds like what Hebrews 11 says happened to some believers. Only this time, it was at the hands of those uh, who claimed to know Christ by faith. It's sobering to think that our forebears who believed in biblical baptism as we practice it today paid with their lives for what they believed. And again, I would reiterate, this is why I refuse to have my theology named by someone who persecuted my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, what about Calvin and covenant theology? And I know our time is up. While Calvin is neither the originator of Reformed covenant theology nor the author of the first book of the covenant, those honors falling to Zwingli and Bollinger respectively, he is, as Peter Lilbach states, the first to integrate the covenant concept extensively into his theological system. Calvin's statement of the unity and the differences between the two testaments led him to set forth what many have called a covenant hermeneutic. In other words, he interpreted the Bible through the covenants. He referred to what happened in the Old Testament as liniments, portraits, uh, 
which portray spiritual, uh, heavenly, eternal blessings in various ways. Uh, he spoke most of signs, symbols, figures, images. He loved the words type and typify. His view was that since God has imprinted analogy and congruity between the type and the antitype, Old Testament exegesis must interpret the types which are given by God but not invented by the exegete. All right, typically, uh, interpret the Bible uh, by types and not, here's what he said, not merely literally. This left the door open to private interpretation, with the, which the Roman church and unfortunately many reformers did to the detriment of Holy Scripture. So let's conclude. The debate over Calvin and his teachings will probably not disappear in the church age. Spiritual leaders and gullible simpletons uh, have embraced the man as they have struggled with his teaching. By the way, it, dis it, it, it grieves me, it disappoints me. We, we're critical of secular pop culture because they follow us popular. Do you know... As Christians, we have our celebrities too. And some author writes a book and everybody runs that direction. Some Christian musician writes a song and everybody runs that direction. My Bible tells me to follow Christ. Say, now, is this, is this a problem? You all know that we support uh, some of our church family on the island of Guernsey. In fact, I could have Brother McCain come, and he sees it in England too. But on the island of Guernsey, I was there with the LePages on their survey trip, and on a regular basis, I talked to Glenn and Cher. On that island, there are Christians, but they are so consumed with Calvin and election that they literally are critical of our missionaries when they go out and try to tell people about Jesus. Literally, what are you doing that for? You're an embarrassment. Why, why, why are you doing that? And then, in that survey trip, Glenn's mom got saved. There was a German man who came to one of the services, and, and uh, after the preaching, he came to Christ. And they were critical and doubtful that that really even happened in those people's lives. Now, imagine trying to be a missionary on an island where the Christians think that way. Why do they think that way? They'll tell you. Our Calvinism won't, we can't accept that. And so I close. Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed, in other words, he's revealed his mysteries, belong unto us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of his law. So God revealed himself so that we understand how to obey. So when we get in the New Testament, what's the last thing Jesus told his disciples before he went back to heaven? It's right here. Go make disciples. And how do we know that that's our responsibility? Because of the mysteries that he's revealed to us. 
He did not give us good doctrines like election and foreknowledge and predestination so that we can say we have figured out God and we don't have to obey. 1 Corinthians 2.13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And so there are doctrines in the scripture that we cannot understand because of who God is and his mind. But what he's told you and me to do as believers that's really clear. So let's let God be God and let's obey our God. When Paul was in Corinth, he got into that wicked city. He looked around. In fact, I was just reading this this week because in your Bible reading, that's where we're at in the book of Acts. And Paul is overwhelmed by the wickedness in Corinth. It was the Las Vegas of the empire. It rivaled Pompeii. And so Paul sees this. He goes to bed at night, and the Lord comes to him, and he says, Paul, be of good courage. I have much people in this city. And so Paul woke up and said, it's amazing. There was another missionary here. No, no, no. He was the first witness. But here's what the Lord was saying. Paul, I know who the elect are in this city. That's my business. Your business is to go tell everybody you can that I want to save them. And when they get saved, you'll find out who the elect is. But the elect, that's my business. Your business is to tell them. And in that city, because Paul wasn't jumbled up in his theology, he was a bold witness for Christ, and a thriving church was started in that place. So what does that teach us? The elect are all around us. But that's not my business or yours. My business is to love souls, to point them to Jesus. And if somebody gets saved, well, there's another one of the elect. Hallelujah. But as I look out on a sea of humanity, God wants to save every one of those souls. That's why he sent Jesus. My job is to tell them. So let's go tell them. And let's be careful that our theology doesn't get wrapped up in, in the past and what's popular. Let's be obedient to our Lord. Stand together with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good attention, my brothers and sisters tonight. Lord, as we look back at history, thank you that you're willing to use clay pots like Calvin, like Asher. Lord, but we need to be true to your word and empowered by your spirit. Use us to be bold witnesses. Use us this week and again as your gospel is proclaimed. Keep us safe as we head home tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.